Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join guilt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible, successfully exited founder. You know, he's done it, you know, multiple times successfully. And today we're going to be talking about what he's doing with his rocket ship, you know, the, the new baby now that he's launched not long ago. But, uh, but again, you know, the whole thing of building, scaling, financing and exiting, you know, which we like to hear. We're going to be covering it in detail. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Curtis Lynn. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. It's great to be here. Uh, a longtime listener and excited that I finally get to participate in the show. Well, we are excited to have you, Curtis. Now, in your case, hey, you were born in the Bay Area, but born to immigrant parents. How was life growing up? <laughs> I think it was like a lot of other immigrant kids in that. I feel like every day was a challenge of how do I further assimilate myself, right? I think about like a lot of the things that I was into, like uh, streetwear, getting Jordans, uh, you know, like trying to read all the same, watch the same shows that my friends did to kind of fit in. But there was always this kind of feeling of like having to really prove myself that I think is kind of a, a common thread to the rest of my, my life. Now, in your case, um, you had this energy going on and to thank God, you know, to Pokemon cards, you know, they, you know, had a, had a difference, had an impact in you. So how, how, how is that? So first of all, uh, I have to apologize to my parents because they were, even though they were tough parents, they were good parents and I put them through hell. Like, uh, in fifth grade, I set the record for detention hours, uh, for the school, like in the history of the school, it was like 150 detention hours. And it was because I was just like, so I feel like I had all this chaotic energy where I was like, you know, I, I, I want to do stuff. I want to do that. I want to sit in this classroom and just be told what to do. Right. And so I needed to find a way to translate that energy into something that was actually productive. And for me, I've always been someone who, once I set my eyes on something, I'm like, I have to have it. Right. So um, for all my 90s kids out there, the thing was Pokemon cards. Right. And the like holy grail of Pokemon cards was this Charizard card, the holographic one, that was like the, the creme de la creme of Pokemon cards. I had very stingy, traditional Asian parents who were not going to spend any money to buy me 
packs. And the way you get them is by these packs and you hopefully you, you get that card. So I had to figure out how to get there. And what I basically did was every day I would take my lunch and I would trade it for Pokemon cards. And so I started with like a couple like really bad ones, like the, you know, the normal Pikachu, Squirtle, whatever ones. And then just over time, I kept on trading up and trading up. And across the span of about a year, I eventually traded my way into, after many days of empty stomach and, and, and you know, lack of lunches, uh, to my, to the holographic Charizard card. And that was like the crowning achievement of my childhood and i still have that card in my like childhood bedroom on the wall so it's like something that i'm like deeply proud of uh but also <laughs> i didn't realize this but the value of those cards are now like pretty high I, oh, yeah. I they're like fifteen thousand for one of those cards so like it actually ended up being a great long-term investment too i mean i've seen that there's even some pokemon cards that go in the millions yeah i unfortunately I mean... have one of those but one day I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. Now, now, in your case, you know, you ended up going to UCLA and uh, still, you know, like while well, you were still in school, you know, now you were like even thinking about launching stuff. And in fact, you launched, you know, your your very first company there. So where did that entrepreneurial drive come from? Yeah. So a couple of things I'll say. Number one is the college experience, I think, is different for everyone. But I had a really... uh inspirational football coach when I was in high school who basically told me, listen, there's a lot of lessons you'll never learn in the classroom. And I really internalized that because throughout, I think with a lot of other uh, children, especially immigrant children, you're kind of like told by your parents, like, you've got to get straight A's, you got to do all these things. Like that's, that's the expectation. And so I did all of that throughout high school and like, you know, gone to a, a great college that I'm, you know, deeply proud of to have gone to. Then once I got there, I realized I was like, I don't really like want to spend all my time in the classroom. I actually want to like build more social skills. I want to be like someone who's more holistic. And so uh, I really spent a lot of my time in pursuits outside of the classroom and just like tinkering with stuff. Right. And so um, when I think about what we were doing, I've always had these ideas of like, I wonder like what would happen if we tried this or tried that, or like, I think the world should really work this way. And it was the first time that I actually had, you know, a lack of parental supervision to actually do something. So I was like, great, like, let me go play around with that. And so my two friends and I started this company that basically built a piece of hardware that would attach to your bike frame to prevent bike theft. So like think low jack, but for bikes, right? This is like back in 2011 when the technology was like not fantastic. But what we basically did was uh, built this thing. Uh, and frankly, I, I like to, you know, playfully call it a, a dumpster fire of a business because my two co-founders were amazing, uh, technically, and I was the quote-unquote business guy. And I had no right being the business guy. Like, if I had the experience that I have now going back, I think that could have been a totally different business. It could have, you know, been huge. Uh, but basically, I cut my teeth on just, like, learning, like, what a PL is, like, how to sell to enterprise customers, what channel distribution meant, and all these things of just, like, trying to figure out how to make something from zero to one. Uh, but we eventually ended up uh, selling the IP to Verizon. And just that whole journey really showed me, hey, like you can really make something of yourself if you just kind of take an idea that you have and just try your best to actually make it happen. And it's really as simple as that. Once we did that, like I was hooked. From that point forward, I was like, all I want to do is just do startups from now on. Like I just want to continue to create. So one thing there that um, that I thought it was really interesting that you, you you and I you know we've we've talked about it offline is how first time founders they think about product and second time founders they think about distribution. Why do you think that that happens? I think 
when you're a first time founder, you're, which is by the way, a great thing. Uh, you're very idealistic, right? You have this view of the world that you want to make a reality and you should never lose that. That vision is like so critical to being a good leader. And people, people come to a company because they believe in your vision that you're selling, right? With that in mind, you are like most people think about vision from a product perspective, right? Like what does the world look like when we're successful? When you ask that question, it's really hard to think about how does distribution get you to that end of vision? It's always about like, what are we building that makes that reality happen? And so I think it's only with all the scar tissue of having done it multiple times that you realize that the world is full of people, society is full of people, and the way that things go from zero to one are that people have to decide that they want to use it and people have to use your product and then share it with the world. And so the distribution becomes a much more compelling thing to get to the true outcome that you're looking for. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of B2B founders can relate to this. I'm a consumer guy generally by like DNA. I have had so many B2B deals done where the lesser, frankly, crappier product was picked because of the relationship, because of the you know dynamic that exists between the businesses. And it just really underlies the point that it's not just the best product wins in the market. It's just not true. Now, now in this case for you, I mean, you guys, you know, at least obviously I'm sure that as you were saying, you guys would have done things differently there. Um, you know, but you ended up, you know, at least, you know, selling the IP and the technology, which, you know, hey, first, hey, company first, the outcome. And one thing led to the next, you know, you you find yourself in in San Francisco and eventually, you know, after being involved with some startups there, you know, you end up founding looks. So how was that journey of of you know, coming up with the idea, you know, the team, and then all of a sudden, you know, you guys finally bring it to life. Yeah. So uh, I will just clarify that my co-founder Curtis was really the like progenitor uh, of the company, uh, and I and I joined him on that journey. So I fortunately can't take the credit of being you know one of the original founders of the business. Uh, but the the idea. So I I, I uh, met Curtis through a mutual friends. And as we started to kind of talk and understand the business, the idea was just so compelling, right? Like, you know, when uh, there's that famous Brian Chesky framework around like the 11-star experience, right? And it starts with saying, well, what is a two-star? What is a three-star? What is a four-star? What is a five-star? And let's just not stop there. What would an 11-star actually look like? And very few products, I think, out there in the world really deliver that magical experience that make you truly say, oh my God, like that was amazing, right? And so I remember actually trying the Lux experience for the first time. And for those who aren't aware, Lux was basically on-demand valet parking. So you're driving around town, you can't find a parking spot. Somebody drops, uh, or you drop a pin and a valet comes to pick up your car for you and park it in a nearby garage. And then whenever you want your car back, whether it's there or anywhere else, you just drop your pin again, they bring a car back to you. And that is a really magical experience if you can execute it well. Right. Like we I remember um, on our website, we had this like wall of testimonials where we just had all these tweets. And there were like some of the most influential people in the valley were like, oh, my God, like I tried lunch for the first time. This is incredible. Like this is real magic. And so I think I felt just so, felt so compelled by that experience. that I was like, I really want to be a part of this journey. And so it was one of those, you know, fairy tale stories early on where we raised a bunch of we raised a C and an A and a B in very short order in about a year and a half. 
and so we learned so many incredible lessons there. But one of the key ones, I think, is uh, the experience, while magical, only gets you so far where sooner or later, you have to pay the piper in the sense of like, you got to build a really foundational business that has great uh, unit economics. And, you know, as a lot of folks who work in on-demand will tell you, on-demand business models are, they're tough. They're like 24-7, the margins aren't great, and you really have to like grind just to get the, the, the operational positive margin you need to be successful. Um, but I, I, will, I have such tremendous respect for all the operators who build those types of businesses because they're just so hard, right? And with, with Lux, how much capital did you guys raise? Uh, we ended up raising uh, over 70 million between the C, the A, and the B. And how, I mean, obviously the, the first rounds of financings that uh, that you were exposed to, you know, in this case, how was that journey, especially during the first uh, the first rounds? So I think uh, because the experience was, so this was kind of like, you have to remember the context. This was like uh, 2014 or 2015, right? So this is like the Uber for X era where everyone was really not sensitive yet to profitability. It was more just like, run the Uber playbook at the scale. And so between having this magical consumer experience and then having this huge TAM, because parking is a problem everywhere in the world, right? It was a really compelling story that like, you know, wasn't necessarily one that was hard to, to see. Um, and so I, I, I feel like, frankly, the fundraising part was the part that uh, was kind of part and parcel and pretty easy. The execution of the operational piece ended up, you know, being the, the really hard part. But I mean, it's you could you can sell that vision to a fifth grader, right? It's like imagine a world where you never have to worry about parking ever again. And everyone, like I think the, the key insight for us was, you know how you always like to start with like the problem and then you talk with the solution. It was a problem that was universal to everyone, even if you didn't own a car. As a kid, you know, you're sitting in the backseat, you think about your parents driving around and like, oh, there's no parking spots, and you just circle the block and like over and over, right? Like that's a problem that everyone can identify with. And so it was really easy to be able to say, like, we're, we're solving that thing, right? Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction. You need to grow. You need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like 1x.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech/dealmakers, and that is again go.tech forward slash deal maker. So go get your own domain. Now, in this case, I mean, obviously it ended up being a nice outcome. You know, Volvo 
ended up buying the company. So at what point does Volvo come into the picture and what was that the process like of, of going through that acquisition? Yeah, it's a really great question. So one of the things that we talk a lot about uh, amongst you know my founder friends and I is this idea that companies are not uh, sold, they're bought. And what that means is, uh, you know, if you if you're going around shopping your business, like that's usually a bad time because the best deals are done because there's a relationship built, and somewhere along the way, the buyer realizes that there's such a strategic imperative to you know acquire that business because it's going to help them get to their goals much faster. Um, that it always is is preemptive or, or or largely organic, right? It's not like you're like going around and saying, "Somebody, please buy." Right, those are never the best outcomes, um, and I think uh, the same was was true for us. Where all of these big auto OEMs had been reaching out to us for a long time to get partnerships, like we had one partnership with Porsche, BMW, and other ones, and so we had built these relationships uh, with folks, uh, including the ones at Volvo. Where we were saying, "Hey, like, imagine a world where any Volvo owner across the whole world can utilize this platform to get their car picked up in service, to get their car washed, to get their car." Uh, have to get like dry cleaning done and brought back to them, et cetera, et cetera, grocery delivery. The, the, the vehicle is an object that can do a ton of tasks, especially if you're not the one who has to be with it. And there's so many things you can do to create add-on services. And so I think they really bought that vision early on. And then the key was really just continuing to show progress and the advancement of the platform to the point where they felt like one day they were like, we really need this to fulfill our vision of the world. And, you know, that is eventually when things are to come together. So the acquisition ended up happening. And um, what kind of clarity did that give you into going through a really nice acquisition through a, you know, with a nice, you know, acquirer like Volvo? I mean, that's a, you know, some serious business when it comes to to a big corporation. I, th- <laughs> I think this is a great question uh, because every founder I've talked to has gone through the acquisition process. Like, you're so tired by the end of the journey, right? Because you've been burning it at both ends for years and years, you know, seven days a week, uh, most waking hours of the day, that the first moment that you actually get the deal signed and you're just there is just like trying to unplug, not unplug, let me, I think the best way to frame that is to just like step one level back from that level of just like redlining all the time. And once you can finally do so, I think you start to like actually internalize the lessons that you learned uh, along the way. I think the the biggest thing was just uh, think about the average product cycle for Volvo. It's from inception to production release of a car is on average seven years versus a software company where like that's like a couple hours, right? And so the whole like ethos of the way that the business is run is so fundamentally different. Because you got to get it right the first time. And so they just list all these checks along the way versus the like super fast iterative motion that most startups go through, especially if you're a software uh, solution. And so it was really like a, a jarring uh, culture shock for a lot of us like coming in and being like, whoa, like this is a totally different way to operate. But what was also great is it kind of made us realize that uh, there is a lot of operational excellence in big companies. And so being able to get a dose of that and balancing the two was was really great. And frankly, I think just seeing the platform take off and go global in a way that we were never going to do on our own uh, was really cool to see too. So it was really rewarding and it was a good closing of the chapter um, for, for that to happen. 
So then let's talk about closing of the chapter, because after doing the typical vesting and resting, you know, for, for some is more resting than for others, but I'm sure that here it was hard work. But after that integration happened, you know, basically, you know, like you ended up, you know, coming up with your next uh, idea with Pinwheel. So um, how did the, you know, the idea come about here, you know, with your co-founder and um, how did you guys, why did you guys think it was meaningful enough to take action? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is I have found this to be true of most uh, founders that I've talked to. I find myself to be what I call constitutionally unemployable, meaning when I have a boss, things don't usually go well, right? <laughs> but I don't, I don't agree with what you're saying. I don't agree with this approach. We got to do it this way. And, you know, for better or for worse, uh, I think I've found that feeling at Volvo too, right? Where it was like, there were some amazing people there, but I was just like, we, we got to go this direction, guys, come on. And they were like, well, no, we have this plan. Let's just follow the plan. I was like, I got to, I, I, I have this fire. I have to, you know, uh, put out or at least feed, I should say. And so uh, when Curtis and I were at Volvo, we have both received HSAs, health savings accounts for the first time, right? And these health savings accounts, you realize are these super powerful financial vehicles because they have the triple tax protection. And what we also realize is that they're so hard to use. They're often run by kind of like older incumbents that don't really optimize around the consumer experience. And people just often don't have the money to actually pre-fund the account to use it. So we realized you could actually solve that problem if you just automated the whole experience. So basically what we did was we had people connect their spending accounts with an aggregator, uh, like Platter, Finicity, or what have you. And then we built an algorithm that would monitor their transactions. And whenever they made a qualified medical expense, we would flag it, go in their payroll system, and just handle all the complexity so that they just got their tax savings added to their paycheck every month without doing any work. And what we saw was you're adding $1,000 to $2,000 of free money into these people's accounts every year. And that's the difference between putting food on the table or making rent on time for a lot of people, right? So we're like, we got to, this thing has the potential to really make a positive impact uh, in, on the world. And so we took that and really kind of ran with it for a while. And then interestingly, one of the things that we encountered very early on was we were spending all of our engineering hours not actually building product, but just building integrations because we'd have all these customers coming to us and saying, hey, this is an awesome idea. I really want to use this. But my, my, my company uses ADP or Paychex or Workday or one of these other systems. Do you guys support us? And we were like, no, we have this very janky beta with Gusto that's like duct taped together. And they were like, well, can you, you know, build support for us? And so we're looking around and we're like, there's got to be some API out there that allows us to connect into all these payroll systems to make this thing happen automatically. And then we realized that there wasn't. So we built it ourselves just to power our own app. And then this first really major inflection point came about for us where we realized that uh, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other businesses out there, both like one person FinTech startups in their garage or the biggest banks in the world that all needed programmatic access into payroll systems. Because just think about what's in there, right? There's such valuable information about who you are, how much you make, where you work, what you pay in taxes, what your health benefits are. Imagine if that data was portable and could be shared with the consumer's permission with the bank. Just think about all things you can do, right? You can improve verification, improve underwriting, you can do real-time 
uh, use cases. You can switch direct deposits. The list goes on and on. And once we had that realization, we're like, wait a second, let's kill the, the HSA app and let's just focus on becoming that infrastructure provider, enabling all the players in financial services, big or small, to build the future of financial services. And how do you guys make money? So uh, it's an API. And so the way that we make money is much like other APIs in that there is a per API call or what we call a transaction fee model. Um, and then we also have, because a core part of the business is real-time use cases, uh, there's also a component of it where there's a subscription model where people can keep an account connected and monitor the account to see, hey, like, is there been a change in their income? Is there a change in their employment? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that we charge uh, a subscription fee plus transaction on top too. Was it easier this time around to raise money? So <laughs> it's a really good question because I feel like anyone who is honest about fundraising in that time, this was like 2019 to the beginning of 22. I mean, this was like the, the golden era for, for founders, right? And I think they had to be honest with yourself. I would like to believe that I'm like an okay fundraiser, right? But the truth of it is in that market, like if you had a decent idea and you were, you know, a, a, a decent founder, it was kind of hard not to raise, right? Like it was like, and so I, I do think that while I don't try to dispense advice, because I think my experience on that was unique, uh, it goes back to the, what we learned at Lux, which is it's the storytelling piece, right? Like, and one of the things that I just think is so under, uh, under understood, that's not a, a word, but I guess misunderstood, I should say is that selling as a skill is a universal thing that people don't really realize, right? Because think about what you do as a CEO. You have all these constituents. You have your employees, you have your investors, you have your customers, you have your partners, you have you know, all these other people in the ecosystem. Every single one of those folks, you are selling something to. You're selling your employees the vision of what this could be become and the value of that equity in the long run. You're selling investors on the story and what their investments can return. You're selling customers on this product working well and, and making a big impact on their business. You're selling partners on a shared business outcome where they both make a lot of money and a, and a really product, a deep product synergy. And for the broader market, you're selling them that the company is gonna be this amazing outcome, right? And I, the number of CEOs that I've met who you know, don't continue to refine that skill with each step. Uh, it's kind of surprising to me because like, that's literally all you do all day long. You're, you're just selling. Right. Um, and so I think very luckily because of uh, what I've done in the past, uh, there was some element of just naturally doing a lot of that that helped with the fundraising process. But again, it was a, it was a unique time that may never happen again. And how much have you guys raised today? Uh, we've raised 77 million to date. Uh, we raised the seed round from our uh, great friends at First Round Capital um, and uh, Josh Koppelman uh, for the folks in the, in the market who know him, uh, along with our friends at Upfront as well and our good friend Greg Batnelli there. On the Series A uh, was from Co2 um, and the head of the fintech practice, uh, Michael Gilroy. And then on the B uh, was with GGV um, with our great friends, uh, Jeff Richards and Tiffany Luxo. All amazing partners. Um, we have been really lucky that in our entire journey, we've been preempted. I've never actually done a real process before. But I think, again, it goes back to what we talked about around M&A. When you build relationships and you build them the right way, uh, your 
constantly feeding your 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 pipeline in a way that doesn't require you to have the action runner process if you I think do it well. Yeah, no kidding. Now, obviously, you know, to all these investors, you know, they saw clearly a vision that was compelling enough for them to, you know, offer you to lead your round and and to get a round done. Now, talking about that, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Pinwheel is fully realized, what does that world look like? That is a fantastic question because we actually just talked about it again as a team at our all hands earlier this week. So every single person on the team joined because they have a personal connection to the mission and something that I'm deeply proud of having as a central uh, thread across every pinwheel on the team. So when you think about the world today, especially in the financial services world, there's this idea of credit bureaus, right? And these credit bureaus are antiquated because they take a, a single number, your FICO score, and they determine everything in your financial life with right? The problem with the FICO score is that it's basically a, a record of historical performance, right? And so when you think about any credit product, there's two questions you always have to ask. What is the customer's willingness to pay? And what is the customer's ability to pay? When you talk about uh, willingness, FICO has been a like, proxy for it, and it's okay, not great. But no one has ever actually tried to answer systematically this question of what is the customer's actual ability to pay? And the ability is actually way more important from a risk and underwriting perspective, right? And so when we think about this, our long-term envision is to say, we are trying to build the fourth bureau, the income bureau. So put aside FICO, what really matters is answering this question about ability to pay. And the way that we do so is by partnering with all of these different payroll providers to say, you guys have this information, put it into the hands of the customer and allow them to make their, like to bring it to the financial provider and get better financial products, right? And so the example I always give is there are like teachers and nurses out there who have really stable jobs, who've had the same job for four or five years, and they have really, really uh, solid borrowing behaviors, but their FICO is like 550. So anytime they go apply for a financial product, they get rejected automatically, right? And what we're saying is, Give them the information that they uh, about how much they make and how consistent it is. Give it to the lender at the point of decision. And they can be like, actually, these people, even though they have a FICO of 550, because of the stable income, are actually much closer to 750 in practice. And we should actually feel comfortable lending them. And what we're trying to do is fix this really broken credit system with a bureau that actually answers all the other questions and builds these really complete profiles versus trying to make all these decisions off of a single number that just doesn't make any sense. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now, we're talking about the future here. So let's talk about the past, doing it with a lens of reflection. Let's say I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back to that moment where you were still in UCLA, you know, wondering what the hell you were going to do with your life after graduating. But let's say, you know, you had the opportunity of, you know, having a sit down with that younger self and being able to give that younger self, that younger Kurt, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? The most valuable piece of advice I could say is uh, just start. I think I historically have always kind of struggled with this thing of like, I have this idea, I overthink it or like, oh, there's no way that's going to work or whatever. 
And I'm a perfectionist by nature. And so, so much of myself is just like, if I want to do something, I want to do it right. And I think what makes a really good founder is someone who prioritizes progress over perfection, right? Like it's better just to get something out just to learn and see and iterate and to be shameless about having a half-baked thing out there than to sit there and say, I'm going to spend another six months on this thing to really make it happen. Because by the time it does, the market has passed by, someone else has done the same idea, or you just don't even, you have all those ideas in your head that you haven't even validated with customers, right? And I think a lot of people, some of the most exceptional people I know are perfectionists by nature, which is what makes them so good, right? Like their bar for what they consider to be a deliverable product is so high that it actually hinders you from being able to do anything, right? And I think like unlearning that um, has been really hard, especially because, and I'm sure a lot of the folks in your audience can relate, being raised by, you know, these two immigrant parents, they set the bar really high, right? I remember, <laughs> I joke with my friends, like, when you bring home a report card full of A's, the first question my parents always asked me was like, well, why aren't those A pluses? And I'm like, first of all, there was no A plus, right? Like, <laughs> I got the highest score I could have gotten. But it was just that mentality of like, excellence is the expectation. And I think that is good in many ways. But if you don't unlearn a part of that, then it actually prevents you from being able to be a really good entrepreneur and a really good leader. I love that. You know, I had a similar realization, the importance of building on data versus building on assumptions. And, uh, and look, I think that you're, you're right on on that. Now, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, feel free to find me on Twitter at uh, Curtis, K-U-R-T-I-S-J-L-I-N. Um, and also uh, feel free to, I love getting emails from anyone, literally anyone. Um, and it's Kurt at pinwheelapi.com. Amazing. Well, hey, Kurt, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. The honor is online. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.